man, I'm so thankful for Don and our choir and musicians and thankful that God gifts people with uh, these abilities to be used for his glory and worship. Amen. And that's a blessing. I appreciate his song. Um, just thinking as they were singing like the rushing of a mighty wind as the kind of referring to the Holy Spirit and I found myself the last week or two whenever I come in these doors especially when I'm by myself or here by myself and just kind of walking through the hallways just been praying Holy Spirit just bring forth a revival to Hillcrest revive revive us revive our hearts and uh, I appreciate that song. This morning I want to begin a new series of messages, and so I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Ruth. And uh, if you uh, don't know where the book of Ruth is, just ask one of the Bible drillers to kind of help you out a little bit, and they'll be glad to help you. First five books, Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And so I'll give you a chance to, to turn there to open your Bible. A few years ago, I went to a nice jewelry store where we lived, and I was on a mission. I uh, wanted to explore the possibility of replacing or updating my wife's wedding ring. In 1982, I was 20 years old and in college and had very little money, but I wanted to propose and get married. And so somehow, I look back on this, I managed to hustle up a few hundred dollars, and that's probably what it was. I wanted to buy a wedding ring and, and to give to Mindy and propose to her that we wed. And so I bought one, and it had this little tiny diamond chip in it, and I gave it to her, and she said yes, and we got married. And over the years, I'd see other wedding rings, and they were large. And they were, some of them round, and some of them were ovals, and some of them were pear shapes and clusters. And while Mindy never said a word, I, and she always said she loved it, and I believe she was sincere, I always thought, man, what a mistake, what a cheapskate. And so a few years ago, I determined I was going to upgrade. And so when you go into a jewelry store, I, I noticed when they bring out these diamonds to you, they, they place them on a black felt surface. There's a reason for that. And there's usually some overhead lights that are real bright. And when they put those clear cut diamonds on those black surfaces, they pop. They stand out and sparkle. And the story that we're going to see over the next five weeks does the same thing. The story of Ruth occurs during the dark days of the judges. It's a severely dark time during Israel's history. It's a great story because it's the picture of a Jewish redeemer named Boaz who takes unto himself a little Gentile bride known as Ruth. And this story points us to another Jew the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls unto himself a bride called the church and redeems her as his own for all eternity. You know, when I think about the gospel and the covenant relationship that God has made available to us and 
he being the groom and we being the bride. Listen, you and I never need to concern ourselves or fear that the groom will divorce us. I don't care how poorly we perform, how badly we don't measure up, how much we do everything wrong. We never need fear that he's going to break this covenant with us and file for divorce and leave us unto ourselves. I invite you to read with me starting in Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and we'll just read the first five verses this morning. I want to speak to you on the subject of the road to Moab. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they, the two sons, took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten more years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died. So the woman survived Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. Let me pray. Father, would you bless your word? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and illumine unto us, Lord, truths that we need to see, and most of all, that we would be able to hear your voice as we consider the mode, the road to Moab. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your life, there have been or there will be defining moments, crossroads, if you will. When you make a decision, a choice, either to travel the same path as everyone else around you or to travel another path, a path that Jesus referred to often as a road less taken. On the other hand, there may have been or they will be some other defining moments when it seems like your destination has chosen you. Occasions when you had no choice whatsoever, when you were just thrust down a path that would, you would have never chosen for yourself. For example, no one chooses the death of their spouse, living alone perhaps, even leaving you with some young children. No one chooses a crippling accident or a life-threatening disease with permanent effects. These two are defining moments. But in both cases, all of us, whether defined by the choices that we made or the choices that life has made for us, are on a journey. We're all traveling a road headed towards some, some kind of destination. And for your consideration this morning, I want to ask you, what road are you traveling? And where are you going? 
What is your destination? What is your objective on this road of life? The text that we're going to see, this story has choices in it. Some of the choices are made. There are choices that were chosen, decided upon by the characters themselves. And the text also reveals that there are some choices that were thrust upon them. They had no choice. They didn't choose some of these things. But in either case, there are outcomes and there are consequences to both types of choices. And as we'll see, there is also the great X factor involved in this text, the God of all grace who has the power to change everything. He has the power to change everything. He is always at work, even when we don't see it, mysteriously working through all of the circumstances and the choices of life, directing all things in our lives for his glory and for our good. And the fact is some of the most painful and the most demanding seasons of our lives by his grace can be transformed into life's greatest rewards if we'll continue to trust him. Continue to trust him and to walk by faith. I invite you to keep your Bible open this morning, and from the text, I want to propose to you, hang on, nine considerations, or nine points, if you will, and some of you may be a little alarmed by that and think that I'm making way too many points and uh, probably going to preach too long, but the next time what I'll do, I'll, I'll promise to make the next one pointless. <laughs> so from the first verse, I want you to consider the context, the context of the story. The story occurs when? It says, during the days of the judges, when the judges ruled. And so according to Jewish history, there is a prophet by the name of Samuel, and it's believed that he is the writer. We don't know for sure, but pretty good indication that it was Samuel. He was the last judge in Judah, and also the one who first anoints the new king for the nation. He was a servant. He, Samuel was a guy who stood between the, the two eras, if you will, a prophet who understood the times and recognized they were not good. If you have your Bible open, notice the last verse right before the book of Ruth in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and what? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Prior to the 400 years of these judges, under Joshua's leadership, the children of Israel finally cross over the Jordan and begin to possess the promised land. Do you remember? And if you remember, the 12 tribes of Israel are all allotted some of the territory. Each are given some land with the exception of the tribe of Levi, because they were responsible for all of the priests. And so these priests, these people spread out and lived in all of the territories, ministering and serving among other tribes. And then once God's people got settled into their own land and established homes, a cycle or a pattern begins to emerge in the book of Judges, and it's more of a downward spiral, a downward cycle. Let me walk it through 
with you. First, God's people would focus on the Lord and they would worship God with passion and enthusiasm and joy. They would be blessed by God and they would prosper, but then they would begin to drift and start to rebel against God and lose focus and begin to become like the world and pursuing the pleasures of the world and begin to sin against God. The next cycle was that God would then move with judgment. He would judge them against them and he would cause them to be oppressed and to suffer and to experience hard times. And then they would cry out to God, oh God, remember us. We're sorry for our sins. And they would repent. And then finally, God in his mercy would raise up a judge, a deliverer, who was a mixture, a little bit of a, a Kind of a a judge was kind of a mixture of a military leader as well as a spiritual leader. And their purpose of these judges was to call God's people back to faith, to return to the Lord. And toward the final era of the judges in chapters 17 through 21 in the book of Judges, God's people have completely lost their way. They have become as every bit as evil as the people around them. And so in verse 1 of our text, it says, In these days, these bleak spiritual days, a, there was a tragic time of severe disobedience and disregard for God, a dark time of sin and evil. That's the context. And then consider the country. Verse 1 says it occurs where? In the land of Judah. This Jewish family is living in the promised land. It's in the place promised to them as far back as God's call upon Abram. Do you remember that in Genesis 12? It's the establishment of God's people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. I'll paraphrase, God says to Abram, I've got a special assignment for you. I want you to get out of this place where you're living, leave your country and move to a land that I'll show you. And I'm going to bless you and produce a great nation through you. And and through you, all other nations are going to be blessed. And finally, this was the land. They were living in the place that God had promised them, the land of Judah. You remember the place that was flowing with milk and honey, and it was all given to them by God. The point is the family in this text is living exactly where God had called them to live. It says in Bethlehem. Do you know that Bethlehem literally means the house of bread? The house of bread, the house of plenty. And so think about it. We still often refer to that land, Israel, as the holy land, right? The land that God had blessed and prepared for his people. And so it's in the days of Judges. These were some decadent days without any focus on God. They're living in this place of faith in the land of Judah. And then consider the characters. Verse 1 introduces us to the family. Verse 2 describes them as a Jewish family. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem. It's a family of four comprised of a husband a wife, and two boys. The husband is named Elimelech. The wife is named Naomi. And the two boys are given the name Malon and Killian. 
And we're going to get into a little more detail about their lives over the next few weeks, but just let me say their names are significant. I'm going to ask that in just a moment you try to remember what they mean. And it's always kind of amazed me how as you go through the Bible, often the names of people and the meaning of uh, or the meanings of their names aligns with their character. For example, you remember Jacob? What does Jacob mean? It means deceiver or supplanter. Kind of describes his life and his character pretty well, doesn't it? Jacob was a rascal of a guy. He deceives his brother, deceives his dad. And it's just an example of what I mean, how names in the Bible often convey things about their character. Well, in the particular case of this Jewish family, their names and the meanings of their names provide some additional insights into the story. See if you can remember what these are. Elimelech literally means, my God is my king. Isn't that a good name? Some of you parents, when you have that little baby boy in the hospital, name him Elimelech, right? <laughs> my God is my king. Naomi means pleasure. Pleasure. My God is my king and pleasure. And Malon means sickness. Sickness. And Killian means wasting away. My God is my king, pleasure, sickness, and wasting away. Nice Jewish family. See if you can remember what those names mean. And then consider with me the crisis that occurs. Again, from verse 1. What's the crisis? A famine. Famine hits, it strikes the land. Now, now, don't just read and pass over that crisis. Specifically, it was a famine in Bethlehem, the place of bread. This family is living in the promised land, a land that had been fruitful and lavish and rich. However, throughout the Old Testament, God was explicit. If my people do this, then I'm going to do that. And he says, if my people forget me, if they disobey my commandments, if they ignore my statutes, if they intermarry with those outside of the faith and they pursue and worship other gods, then this is what they should expect. And God says, here's what I will do. I'll close up the heavens and there'll be no more rain. And when there is famine in the land, which I will bring... I'm also going to bring pestilence, which means disease, COVID. And when their enemies besiege them and their sickness and plagues, then they will understand it is because of their sin. You can read that in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, chapter 7, all throughout Leviticus, other places. So the point is the famine occurs when? During the time of the judges, when Israel had forsaken God and ignored his statutes and worshiping other gods and had abandoned the Lord. And so the idea there is the famine was a form or a tool of God's judgment, always for the purpose of getting their attention. It was a form of discipline, a, a way to teach, a way to instruct his people, drawing them back to repentance and faith. And so what does the family do? Well, consider their conclusion. Consider their conclusion. Emelech, the dad, makes a decision. 
When the famine sets in and the times are rough and they're lean and they're difficult, when God is at work and this come, test comes his way, Eliminech, whose name means my God is my king, takes matters into his own hands and arrives at the conclusion, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave this land. Verse 2 says he decides to pursue greener pastures, to choose the road to Moab. So what do we know about Moab? I'm glad you asked. The Moabites have their origin in Genesis chapter 19. It's when Lot's eldest daughter gets her dad drunk, and through an incident of incest, his daughter gives birth to a son and names him Moab who becomes the father of the Moabites, a people who worship the god of Chemosh and who are later led by an evil king named Eglon. The Moabites were enemies to God's people, steeped in immorality and pagan worship. They were an evil people. It's upon first reading these verses, and it might appear it's kind of commendable, right? Imelech, this dad, is doing whatever he's got to do, taking measures in his own hand to provide well for his family. He's going to leave where he is to go live in a place where he can better provide. Sounds pretty good upon first reading. However, it doesn't appear, if you continue to study this particular famine, that it was all that severe due to the fact that many others remained there in Bethlehem, other Aphthrites, and survived. But it's possible that Elimelech wanted more. He wasn't content remaining where God had placed him. If you look later in the chapter to verse 21, when Naomi eventually makes her way back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, the Bible says she, she they, her, her husband and two kids, what does it say? They left the land full a reference to abundance and wealth. And as you read this and study this, it begins to appear more that Elimelech was not satisfied with staying there. He makes a decision to leave the land where God had placed them, the land where God had called them to, to pursue a life of greater abundance and prosperity of ease and increased wealth. You might surmise from verse 2, perhaps his original intent was to move his family to Moab for just a time. We'll leave this place of faith just for a little while to acquire more food, more money, more prosperity. And the text says, but what? He remained there. He stayed. This text reminded me of a friend his name was Paul. This goes back a few years, several years. And I don't remember how I met Paul, but we became friends and by God's grace was able to lead him to faith, baptized him. And after I moved away, Mindy and I left that church. We found out later he got into some financial straits. And another businessman invited Paul to go in together they're going to business together, and so they opened a bar outside of Madisonville, Kentucky. And a few years later, I discovered 
that my friend Paul had been arrested and was convicted of drug activity and was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. I got a chance to go visit him outside of Lexington, Kentucky, in the Federal Medical Reserve, so state, state federal penitentiary there. As we talked, he began to explain to me, Charlie, everything that I did, I knew all the while it was wrong, but I justified it. The money was good. It was quick. It was easy. And I'll never forget, he said to me, I decided that I would only do it for a short time to get out of the financial hole that I was in and then get out. And the issue became, I kept thinking, one more month, one more month, one more month, one more month, and he never got out, and he paid a price. His sins were he never should have been in that position to begin with, and he knew it. It's pretty easy to justify things. And he compromised, and he paid a price. Paid a price. Was separated from his wife, from his boy. Spent 14 years in federal prison. It's kind of like a limelech. He comes to this conclusion that I'll do this for a while, only for a season. But the season grew longer and longer, and he remained. And there in Moab is where he ended up raising his family. And I wonder about those who compromise, thinking, I'll change later. I'll live in Moab for a season. I'll, I'll stay in what I'm in for a while, but some point later, I'll go home and I'll serve God and I'll live for God and I'll get serious about his glory and his call upon my life. And they like Elimelech, they never make it back home. Perhaps that's you this morning. There was a time when you walked with God, you were in a position of faith, and then some things happened, maybe you had tested, some, a crisis came, and you decided to walk away with the intent that someday I'll return and I'll serve God the way he has called me to serve him, using the gifts of my body and my breath and my life to serve him the way he's called me to serve. And like Elimelech, may never make it back home. I want to encourage you this morning, as Holy Spirit speaks to you today, that during the end of this message, by God's grace, if he's speaking to you, and that that's your condition, that today would be a day where you'll come home. The point is, Elimelech, God is my king, pursues and marries pleasure, and God no longer is his king. And there's going to be some consequences, spiritual sickness and spiritual wasting away. Do you get it? Do you get the picture? For Elimelech, his life ends in Moab with his family left all alone in a sinful place to fend for themselves, a dad who failed to provide the necessary spiritual leadership for his family. Elimelech knew God living 
in a good place with a good family, but he became like the culture. He marries pleasure and began living life, doing what was right in his own eyes, like the judges in that day. And God is calling you and he's calling me and he's calling all of us to live our lives with Jesus as king and to seek his righteousness first, to embrace the gospel and to be his worshiper. Some of you spiritually are coasting, spiritually coasting on a road to nowhere, not engaged, not fully surrendered, not yielded. Some of you dads are married to pleasure, to the pleasures of this day, and you're spiritually sick, and your family is spiritually wasting away. And Holy Spirit, from his word, is calling you to pick up your cross and choose the narrow road and get off the road that you're on to Moab and get on the road to righteousness and to the glory of God. Fully surrender. Be his worshiper. Don't hold back. Don't come to the end of your life with regret and say, if only I had not held back, if only I had done things differently with my life and my family. I want you to consider the curve. Look at verse 3. Here he is living in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilian. These boys marry, and the unexpected happens. The curve comes. They're thinking, looking for a straight ball, a fast ball. Looking for that which is orderly and manageable and straight and smooth, but a curve comes. The unexpected occurs, and Elimelech Elimelech suddenly dies. No one was anticipating that. Everyone is caught off guard. Elimelech's time ends. Maybe, maybe it was a heart attack. Maybe a car accident. Maybe some other tragedy occurs. But verse 3 says, And Naomi is left just her and sickness and wasting away. And then consider how they continue. Verse 4 conveys they carry on living in Moab, and the two sons are sick and wasting away. They also, like their dad, make a sinful decision, some sinful choices. Why would you expect anything different? That's what dad modeled. He compromised. And so who do they marry? They also begin to do what's right in their own eyes, and they marry Moabite women. Malon marries Orpah, and Killian marries Ruth. They marry women outside the faith, compromise, and then for the next 10 years, they all just carry on, continue in Moab, and then consider another curve. Life pitches another curve. Verse 5, sickness and wasting away finally succumb to death. They die. And can you imagine Naomi's grief? Losing a husband, both sons, living now lonely, alone in a foreign land, no more family, no more children, no grandchildren. You see, when God is not our king and we marry pleasure, it shouldn't surprise us when life grows spiritually sick and wastes away. Our choices, our decisions have consequences, followed by either curses or blessings. Let me close. 
I want you to consider God's call. Consider his call. I want to invite you to join with me and others and say, oh, to live for him and to live for his glory. That whatever I do in my life, I want to do it for God's glory, for his honor, to bring honor and recognition to God. I want to warn you. I want to warn you to listen to the voice of Holy Spirit today. Don't compromise. Don't compromise anymore. I was thinking, did any of you see that movie, The Help? You remember that? And do you remember at the end of that movie, the older maid, I forget her name, and she's fired by that old witchy girl, Miss Jeter, right? No, not Miss Jeter. She was a good one. Anyway, you all know who I'm talking about. And the older maid lady confronts the younger mom. She's full of hate. And she says, do you remember what she says to her? She says, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of living like this, being this way? Aren't you tired of your life like this? I want to ask you the same question. Aren't you tired of not living for Christ the way he's called you to live for him? Aren't you tired of not providing spiritual leadership to your family and your home? Aren't you tired of not stepping up to the plate that God's called you to? To be his worshiper, to bring honor and glory to him, to be the witness that you need to be, I was telling somebody yesterday, I was walking through Lowe's Friday and uh, looking for razor blades. And I couldn't find them. Somebody said, they're down the paint aisle. I you know, didn't have glasses on. I, I just couldn't find the razor blades. So there was these couple of guys. They looked like they were mid-30s and had a couple little boys with them. These guys looked like strong guys and had work boots on. They were in there. And I said, hey, I said, you guys know where razor blades are? This one fellow said, oh, he said, yeah. and the other guy, boy, and they, they showed me right where they were. They had these, in the painting aisle, and had all these little tools and scrapers, and sure enough, there was these razor blades. And I said, thank you very much. They said, you're welcome. And I walked out of the aisle, and the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to say something. So I turned around, went back to the aisle, and said, hey, do you guys go to church? Man, they looked at me. <laughs> said, they said, no, we don't go to church. I said, would you be interested in going to church? And, and, uh, those two little guys there teaching them about Jesus. They said, well, yeah, well, they didn't know what to say. I said, listen, I go to Hillcrest Baptist. I didn't tell them preacher. I didn't tell them about preacher. I didn't want to scare them away. And worse, I said, just, you guys would be welcome at Hillcrest, and we'd love to have the opportunity to teach those little boys about Jesus. Just, what, why am I telling a story? Just, just, to, just to be abandoned and just say, God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to talk about you. They probably thought I was weird, probably, really, probably did, but they're not rejecting me. This, it's all about Jesus. Just, just live for Jesus. Just live for his glory, to embrace his calling upon your life and look for opportunities to, to serve him, serve your family, to lead your family. I had a dad in this church Friday, I think it was Friday, 
and uh, just asked me, said, hey, give me some, can you kind of encourage me on how to lead my family and what to read? So I said, just, just read the Bible, man. Just, just sit with your kids and just, just read the Bible with them, right? You know, just sit down, just, just lead, serve, be, be who God's called you to be. Don't stay in Moab. Don't waste away. Don't pine away. Live for Jesus. I invite you to bow with me in prayer. Don to come.